All right, welcome. Uh, congratulations on making it to Thursday of the Harbor Week. This is a spectacular week, but it's also tiring. I feel sorry for tomorrow's speakers. That's going to be a tough one. Uh, <laughs> it's been great. I'm not uh, part of the Church of Christ. I'm Presbyterian, but it was a wonderful invitation from Mike Hope. I've enjoyed my time uh, having meals, being on this campus. Uh, spent 12 years in L.A., so it's nice to be back. I have to, after I finish, I need to run to LAX. Pick a, I'm speaking at Convocation tonight in Oregon, and I haven't prepared that, but it's a two-hour flight, so I'm sure some inspiration will come. I want to invite us to uh, center ourselves a little bit before we begin. And um, I'm Presbyterian, but I work at a Quaker-based institution. And one of the things, we have a few Church of Christ students. You know, we always have a few entering through. Um, and one thing that I've learned from the Quakers is they uh, are methodical and intentional. They create space and they honor uh, what we would often call non-productive time. And so uh, I've adopted a practice of silence, both personally and in the classroom. And I'd invite us to just uh, spend a moment, a minute, in just silence. It's, the idea is just to empty yourself so God can fill you empty yourself. And if someone walks in, they'll think this is kind of weird. But that's okay. And so um, I find it really restorative and a good investment of 60 seconds. So I invite you to uh, enter a period of silence and then I'll close in 60 seconds. So for those of you that weren't here yesterday, my name is Roger Nam. I am a uh, biblical studies professor and a dean at Portland Seminary. Uh, we moved from LA to Oregon 11 years ago. Uh, just got on the five, went north for 949 miles in our houses, actually right off the five by about a mile. Uh, we have, um, at the time, we had an infant and a five-year-old, and now they're 16 and 11, which is weird. And so they pretty much, they're born in LA, but kind of raised in Oregon. And um, I started off as a King scholar. My first book is on First and Second Kings. And I was on sabbatical in Korea when that experience helped open me up to Ezra and Nehemiah. And so I'm spending about 10 years of my career looking through Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm also a pastor. And so my first job coming out of college, I was an econ major. And so obviously I became a pastor with that and uh, pastored for three years in Seoul, Korea after graduation and um, got my MDiv. And obviously after getting my MDiv, I moved to the States, back to the States and became a financial analyst for four years and uh, decided at some point to try to become a professor. And um, just only seven short years to get my PhD and, and get my first job. And so what brings me to Ezra Nehemiah is, you know, when I, when I asked, why did I originally become a biblical scholar? Uh, when I was in seminary and when I was a young pastor, like I'd grown up in the church. Uh, my mom and dad were founders of this like really early on Korean immigrant church in Santa Clara, California. And I just grew up in the church. I never questioned God's existence. Um, and I'd gone to all these Sunday school, vacation Bible school, then teaching vacation Bible school and retreats and all those things. But I feel like I never learned the Old Testament. And if you look at your preaching schedule, it's um, filled with Gospels and Paul, uh, and there are certain texts in the Old Testament that are sacred and a lot that are kind of ignored. And one example, I work for this site, I write for this site called Working Preacher, and every now and then, about every year, they ask me to do four entries. And I say, oh yeah, sure, I'll, I could do it. Um, just uh, what do you have in Ezra and Nehemiah? They go off something called the Revised Common Lectionary uh, every three years. And it turns out the lectionary only has one passage, 
one passage into three years. And so I took it, and then they gave me some Daniel, which was problematic because I don't know that book. Uh, but there's something in our American preaching culture that kind of eschews some of these difficult texts. And look at the Old Testament, really for the first time in seminary, uh, I just was an explosion of a comfort of, of a God that was beyond the boundaries of Sunday school, a God that's really different, like mean and weird and not always consistent from human perspective and scary in a ways that I didn't really get growing up in the church and compassionate in profound ways that I also didn't get growing up in the church. And I think the Old Testament unlocks a lot of that portrayal of God. And I think the American church is greatly nourished when we open that up, but it's hard to preach from that. It's really difficult to preach. And so what I wanna do yesterday and today is the Bible and Ezra Nehemiah, it's really a cross-cultural document. And so what I want you to do as a preacher is whenever you preach from the Old Testament to really do everything you can to get inside that culture. You know, absolve yourself from whatever, whatever Western 21st century mindset paradigms you have and to think deeply about the social context of the text. And I showed this yesterday, uh, what brought me to Ezra Nehemiah. This is Korea in 1967. This is Korea in 2014. And my mom and dad left Korea in 1967, came to San Jose. And in 2014, 47 years later, I came back to Korea for a sabbatical year with my wife, who's Korean descent, with my kids as third generation. And the time from 1967 to 2014 actually matches the time from 586, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, exiled its people, and to 539 when Cyrus uh, released them to go back to Jerusalem. So I thought a lot about 47 years, and yesterday I talked a little bit about identity, that I think this return, this repatriation, is a totalizing effect on Ezra Nehemiah. You need to read everything in light of that context. They're coming back to a land that they had departed from. And with that, there is a crucial need for identity, which shapes into the narrative of the wall building, the, the uh, animosity with neighbors, the, the census, the, the marriage, and the breaking up of mixed marriages. Uh, the issues of language and children are all there. And they make sense to me if I think about the challenges of return. And I invite you to think, just look at how different this is. This is the same country. And just imagine if you were this kid and 47 years later, you're coming back to this. And it may feel kind of weird, but in fact, in um, 586, there was at least a glorious temple and some pride in one of the longest running monarchies that we've known in human history, in, in David. And uh, to have that all devastated and to come back to something completely different, and you can imagine how any country would change 47 years later. You could ha imagine wherever you're from. If your great-grandparents immigrated from Scandinavia, what if you were to go back and to live forever to plant some roots? Yesterday I spoke a little bit about identity. Today I want to sp speak a little bit about another issue of a return migration power. And so this is another one of, I think, really dominant theme in Ezra Nehemiah. Power, how do you negotiate power? How do you deal with your lack of power? And how do you create your own power in this return migration, in this repatriation sense? This is one of the, like, the third Google image on my, in my system if I, if I Google image power. And so what I mean by power is there is a, um, a well-known German political philosopher, uh, Jewish, um, named Hannah Arendt. And she was uh, someone that writes a lot about power and that definition of power is used a lot in biblical studies. And so she argues, so she was, she fleed the Holocaust. Um, she was Jewish and she argued that power is not uh, violent power. True power does not have to be violent power, but true power is often subversive. And so there's a difference between power and authority. So authority, like the president of Pepperdine University and the board of trustees, they have authority, right? But I will assure you there are a few assistant professors that are not tenured that have some power for whatever reason. There are a few students that probably have some power. Surely there are a few donors that don't have authority, but they probably have power. 
they have influence. And so it's important to identify the difference between authority, which is sanctioned, and power. And for Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus has all the authority. But the question is, who really has power, and how do we navigate that power? This is the Persian kingdom, the Persian empire at its peak. And if you look at the scope of this empire, it's kind of unfair because uh, really the Assyrians created the first empire, then the Babylonians took over from them, and then the, once the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they kind of took over the Babylonian empire and expanded. And you think about Judah, a tiny spot right here. So just visually take that in. You have this gigantic empire, and you have this tiny, tiny swath of the empire called Judah, and it's not even that important of a place for now, at least in the beginning. And so how do you negotiate power? You're asked to go back to Jerusalem, build the temple, codify your laws. How do you negotiate the power when you're just one small province of this huge, huge empire? And you were also basically immigrants. You return immigrants. You're doing a return migration. And you're poor. How do you negotiate your power? And I think this is a lot what Ezra Nehemiah is also looking forward to. And so yesterday I showed this slide that the first two verses frame everything in Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, the, war, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, and the call, any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord. So this is the, at least the initial intent of Ezra Nehemiah. And so when I look at power, one question is, where is David? And so I want you to think about your readings of Ezra Nehemiah. Where do you remember David? Well, he's not there that often, hardly at all. And so it, there's a reference to a, a descendant of David, Zerubbabel, uh, who is basically a governor of Judah, but he kind of appears out of nowhere. He just kind of shows up. If you look at later editions of Ezra, this is in the Apocrypha, Zerubbabel has a, a bigger role, but here he's kind of relegated to this distant background role. And also he has a, a Persian name, uh, Seed of Babylon. You also have a mention of King Solomon, but it's a negative mention, Nehemiah 13, 26. And this is in the breaking apart of mixed marriages. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? So compare that, compare that to Chronicles. What do you know about the Davidic dynasty in Chronicles? To give you some reminders, David in the book of Chronicles is almost perfect. There's no mention of Bathsheba. There's no mention of the struggle for the throne. Uh, there is one negative attribution, and that is the taking of the census. Uh, and that is there probably because the, that moment leads to the building of the temple, and Chronicles is all about the temple. And whereas David is almost perfect, Solomon is essentially perfect in view of Chronicles. Uh, they really are selective in what they put forth. And Chronicles has a very strong Davidic ideology. But Ezra and Nehemiah, they're, they're not saying much about David or Solomon or that whole dynasty. And the reason for that is there's not room for two kings. Cyrus is the king, remember, in Ezra 1.1. Cyrus, Darius. Artaxerxes, these are the people that are getting things done. And you can imagine it wouldn't be consistent for Ezra Nehemiah to put forth this great Davidic dynasty while Cyrus is also the king. It also makes sense later when the Persians are destroyed that, okay, now we have space to promote Zerubbabel and the Davidic dynasty. But for now, notice David's not there. Even Nehemiah 9, it talks about all these great things in Israel's past. They don't mention the monarchy. They mention the patriarchs, they mention Moses and the Exodus, the Babylonians, but they don't mention the monarchy. So the absence of David creates a power. The other question, where's God? Okay, so uh, a long time ago, um, Dr. Willis Shirley read this book in graduate school. I read this book. In, there's a book called The God Who Acts, and it talks about God who does all these amazing things. And the God Who Acts became kind of the name for a type of description of God the God who uh, creates the earth and leads the Israelites from Egypt and the Exodus, the God who defeats the enemies, the God who's a, who's a warrior. Where is God in Ezra and Nehemiah? So someone pretty recently uh, took a look at God and all the verbs associated with God 
in Ezra and Nehemiah. And those verbs, first of all, the action verbs are really rare in Ezra and Nehemiah with God. So God's not really doing stuff. And they're almost all put to a place where God is doing something in the distant past. So God is the God who acted in the past. And in fact, in Nehemiah 9, when they pray to God and they have this great repentance, what's really weird in Nehemiah 9 compared to other lament psalms, most lament psalms then will call on to God to rescue and deliver them. But in Nehemiah 9, they kind of call on themselves to rescue themselves. They call on themselves to be responsible. So the God who acts is, as one scholar says, the God who causes others to act. And this is actually pretty consistent. This paradox is consistent with the Bible. And I, I like to share this with uh, congregants and students. Look at the God of Genesis 1. Really scary, distant, powerful. Says one thing and it's done. Let there be light. Boom. Very transcendent. Look at the God of Genesis 2 and, and 3. The one who's like grieving and regretting who is actually calling it out to Adam, the one who feels emotion, the one who walks in the garden with us, those are two very different versions of God. And I don't think they contradict each other, but they both reflect the totality of who God is. And the question I would have is, which is the God that feels real to you at this time? Because there are moments when we need that God of Genesis 1, and there are moments when we need that God of Genesis 2. And both portrayals of deity are fully embodied in, in Jesus of Nazareth, right? This really transcendent power, but also this humanity as well. I remember as a teacher, one thing I'll never, like there was uh, one of my, the most challenging texts for me to teach in OT introduction. The most challenging text is judges to a bunch of Christians. That was really hard. And uh, when I was a young new professor, I just wanted to skip Judges 17 through 21 because I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> like, and you know, as a young filled with bravado, I'm like, oh, well, actually, we'll, we'll concentrate that. We're just going to open up the text. And the discussion I remember my very first year teaching in 2008 was, who is this God? Uh, what is Judges? And this God is so disturbing for us, too. But I remember one woman in seminary, she's probably in her 50s, and she hardly spoke in class, but she said, the God of Judges 1721, that's the God I need. And she is a widow, and she watched her best friend, uh, uh, another person, she watched her best friend die. And she's been in a world where she needs that sovereign God that she doesn't understand, but as long as that God is on her side, she's okay. And I'll never forget that answer, that this portrayal of God, which is paradoxical, which has tension, is actually very rich and more meaningful to a community of faith. So back to as no theophany, God doesn't do anything. This is often compared to the God of Esther or even the God of Joseph. So think about the patriarchs. God's like totally hanging with Abraham, right? With Joseph, he's kind of a little bit distant. And this is a little bit more like that God right there. So where is God? Uh, God is surely there, but just not in ways that we understand in other narratives. The other thing I want to point out, like, no David, no reference to the kingdom, very little. When it is, it's pretty negative or relegated to, like, a small detail. Uh, God is not the one who's leading the exodus or doing the plagues or defeating warriors and kings. Uh, in Lu, you have prominence given to these foreign kings. This is also rare but unprecedented, in, not unprecedented in the Bible. For example, the second half of the book of Isaiah often talks about these foreign kings in almost messianic terms, in glowing terms, which is really weird. Uh, Jeremiah as well, because typically these kings are enemies, but... In Ezra Nehemiah, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, they're all people that executed divine will. And what's striking is these are not shown to be uh, Yahweh worshipers, but God still uses them. God chooses to use these foreign kings to get these things done, like building the temple, building the walls, restoring the community, and getting worship to happen. 
So on the external, you see the authority given to these Persian kings and the power. That's a little harder thing. Where is this power? And I'm here to present to you the idea that power comes through God, but it comes in a different way through writing. Writing is the key to power. And just to like look at Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah is like obsessed with writing. Look at all the lists. Look at all the letters. Look at the reference to the book of Torah. And so I want to ask you a question right now, and just to personalize it, do you enjoy writing? And this is an answer that in my life has changed tremendously <laughs> in my years. Uh, do you enjoy writing? Rank your, in, your enjoyment of writing and not your ability. I don't care if you're good or bad, your self-assessment. You're probably wrong anyways. But what is your enjoyment of writing on a scale of 1 to 10? 10, you love it. You love writing. Get yourself a cup of coffee, a good view, and a journal, and you love that. Uh, one, you absolutely hate writing. If you have, are a student and you have a paper due, that is like your worst experience ever. You want to delay it as much as you can. So take about 15 seconds and score yourself between 1 and 10. 10 love it, 1 hate it. Okay, and that first number is probably a good one. I'm going to invite you to pair up with another person, share the number and the explanation. I'll give you 90 seconds to do that. So go ahead, 90 seconds. Okay, hey, take about 20 more seconds to wrap it up. I'd like to invite the ones, twos, and threes to kind of share, like, no shame. Like, why are you a one, two, or three? Is there a bad experience? Is there, like, what, what is about that? You know, you just really dislike this exercise. Yeah? It just sounds, sounds dumb after I read what I just wrote. <laughs> oh, wow, God, that was right. <laughs> you don't have to read what you write. <laughs> I have a solution. <laughs> okay. Others? Is there anyone? Okay. It's so laborious trying to get it right. Yeah. And it's just a very slow process that doesn't produce what you want at the beginning. Yeah. Others? I gave myself a five, which is probably gracious. Yeah. And uh, because it's fatigue, mm -hmm. and which goes with, I think, the whole thing. Yeah. It means well, it's, you said to not write it as to our, to our ability, but I don't have a very good ability to write, which makes me not enjoy it as much. Okay. Yeah. I didn't like French in high school. And it probably had to do with ability, I'm guessing, I, I guess. Okay, eight, nines, tens. Why, and this is just your experience, and this has nothing to do with like how accomplished you are, but why do you enjoy writing? Some of you eight, nines, tens. Yeah. I don't, uh, I'm not an accomplished writer. Let me preface this with that. But I enjoy it because it helps me to retain the information okay. that I'm writing. Like I'm taking notes in your class right now, and it's helping me retain some of the information. I like it because it's something I can go back to if I, because I'm a, I was telling Martin, I'm a preacher, 
and I haven't quit writing since my, all of my schooling. So I went to high school, college, writing to preaching school, and now I'm writing sermons and whatnot. So it helps me retain that information. It's something I can go back to if I need it. And even though, yes, it can be tedious sometimes, it's still something that I know I'll get some benefit from. So, okay. But I consider myself an eight on the scale. I'm okay. not the, oh, I love it, but okay. I'm up there. That's just me. All right, all right. Any others? Yeah. The thing that I have learned to really love in writing is actually journaling my prayers <laughs> um, because it helps me to, I, I do it in cursive style and that is just really therapeutic to just be able to write a prayer to God and engage in that. So that's, that's one that I love, but I also love putting together lessons. Okay. So when I think of writing, it's, I love just writing and wordsmithing and I'm, I was an engineer originally, so oh, really? I, okay. I didn't do writing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I love having written uh, after the process is over, and I really love, uh, you know, having something down. I I learn what I actually think in the process <coughs> of writing writing it down. It always is um, <coughs> kind of amorphous until I actually say it, and when I say it in writing, then I have a lot better a base for then further development and, and all of those things. But I'd have to say the process of writing is still kind of a, a block to, uh, it's a hard thing to do, and um, but I love love it once I've gotten through it. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's like what people say about running. I hate running, but I love having ran. Like, <laughs> you're done and sweaty, it feels great. <coughs> Other eight, nine, 10? Who's actually gone on a journey either direction, like used to be a three and now an eight, but you, or used to be an eight and now a three? Has anyone kind of gone on a journey with that in your life? A little bit? What brought you, which, which direction did you go and what brought you there? Well, I'm a phys ed major and I played sports in, in college and stuff, so I really wasn't uh, academic, so to speak, at that point. And then I became a missionary, and then coming back to America after two decades, went to graduate school uh, in Bible. So, like last semester, I had to write a 35-page paper. So, imagine going three or four decades without having written anything and not knowing. You know, we didn't have computers, but last time I was in school, we didn't have the internet. Research was different. So, for me, I, I had to force feed myself um, for the first few months, and so I think I'm starting to enjoy it more. But I was so worried about the technical side of what teachers wanted, footnote wise, and annotations and stuff that that wore on me for a while. But once I got comfortable with that, then I could concentrate more on enjoying the content of the writing. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yeah. It's one that's helped me grow just recently even more into the enjoyment of it and the, the intentionality of it is reading an article about consuming versus creating. And we live a life of consuming and we just consume, consume, consume. And that's my idol sometimes is information. And, but instead of consuming the information, engaging it, pondering it, and then creating it, as I create, I grow as a disciple. And so that's really helping me move even farther yeah. on the, the writing side. Yeah. Now writing is, um, it's an incredible process. I went on a journey. High school, probably two. Um, College after one class, probably five or six, and seminary shot it up to eight or nine. And I don't think it was that good, but there was something about the process of putting something, putting text down and recording it that was meaningful. When we talk about writing in power in Ezra Nehemiah, I need to get you out of your world of what writing means. Because the idea of taking a pen and a journal or a computer or an iPad and writing, that's just not a thing in the Persian period. What was literacy during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? You don't, we don't know for sure, but we're guessing like one to three percent. One to three percent. And so when you have the word spoken, that's your access. They don't have Bibles, much less the ability to read the Bibles. And the literacy that was there was a very low level literacy. You're not reading Shakespeare, you're reading like economic receipts. And so part of writing is you, you need to enter that world where it's rare, and when it's rare, it has a different social value. 
So Ezra 8.1, they told the scribe, Ezra, he's called a scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, or the book of the Torah of Moses, or your translation might say, um, the scroll of the Torah of Moses. And so uh, this is a really rare appearance of the Torah being a written document. So Torah means a bunch of things in the Old Testament. It could actually mean to throw something. Um, you could Torah an arrow. Uh, it means generally teaching. It means law. And in this case, it's referring to a physical document that refers to something like the Pentateuch, something like the Pentateuch. And so it's kind of rare to see this appearance as a scroll. And to get you, like, imagine inventing writing, you know, inventing writing. And so there is, uh, whenever you invent something, it's not like, boom, it's invented. There's actually a lot of stuff that happens before. And before the invention of writing for even a thousand years, there's something we call pre-writing. And so this is a seal, a cylinder seal, which you would have a storage vessel, and then you would seal it shut so you would know it belongs to probably the king or the provincial leader. This doesn't have characters, but usually some sort of pattern. And he had something like counters, beads, and incisions. And so you would uh, store grain in a silo, and you would put a bunch of beads in a clay ball, like six of them, and then you would seal it. So you know there's supposed to be six units of grain in the silo. So in case someone steals something like that, and different geometric shape counters for different units of measure, like, you know, feet, inches, that type of thing. Uh, and they had this for a thousand years before the first emergence of writing. And then you have the invention of writing. <coughs> writing appears to have been invented in two different places uh, without much influence. And in, it comes out this, the way you would guess it would come out. It begins with uh, a picture that looks like the actual item. In the very top, you have... Uh, that's the sign for the sun and how, and it kind of looks like the sun at the very beginning and how it evolves over time. And here this, the clay tablet, just kind of this big. Uh, if anyone plays ice hockey, apparently you, you work with the clay, um, you bake it and it, it feels like a hockey puck. It gets that durable. So there are actually literally a million of these still extant today. Uh, they last a long time. And if you work with pottery, once it gets to a leathery feel, that's when you take a stylus and you make these kind of wedge marks into the clay, and it stands for something. So you could actually see the sign for God, which means sun. It's the same sign. And uh, this kind of might be akin to like a Japanese Chinese characters. Mm -hmm. Some signs have 30 different wedges. They're also multivalent, so they can mean multiple things. They mean either an object or a determinative, like is it a wooden object, or is it a type of god, or it is a sound, or one of many sounds. It also changes the sign and changes its value throughout time. So a certain sign in Old Babylonian there in Hammurabi might mean something different in Late Bronze Age during the time of Moses. So needless to say, it is extremely hard to learn how to read this system. It is extremely difficult. There are 600 <laughs> basic signs, and they're all multivalent. And so writing was very elite. You had to be in school for decades to learn how to do and, and we actually have this, because you have scribal texts. You can see what a rudimentary scribe does. You see what an advanced scribe does. And there's certain lessons that happen back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> so there is that other sign for originally sun, but it became the same sign for God. And when scribalism is very elite, it takes on different properties. These are uh, examples from the 10th century in Israel. And for a long time, we only had one example. And then within a decade, we got possibly two or three more. Um, so this is called the Gezer calendar. And this is written on limestone. And so all you um, geology people, limestone is soft. You can scrape it. This is what's called a palimpsest. And so this text is in this kind of like weird pre-Hebrew, and it talks about an agricultural year that adds up to 12 months. And it refers to about six to eight types of products, you know, barley, dates, summer fruit. And one of the ideas of this text is you have this limestone, and you use this text, and you scrape out the letters, 
and it's part of some magical ritual to help ensure a good harvest. And one of the arguments for that is um, if you have done any farming, uh, you're relying on God. You know, you can do whatever you can, but you cannot control the weather. You cannot even control pestilence. You depend on God fully. So the idea of a magical ritual integrated with writing that helps you ensure the right harvest. And that's one interpretation. Um, but one thing I do think, if this is the only, one of the few examples in the 10th century during the time of David, there's something very special about writing. This was found in 2005, I think, and basically they went on excavation at a place called Tel Zayat. The very last day of excavation, if you ever have the opportunity, all you're doing is cleaning. You're sweeping so that you can take good pictures. And so there's a college kid who's sweeping this rock which is embedded into a wall, and he's like, oh, that looks weird. Calls his site supervisor, site supervisor calls the director, and he finds what was then the second example of 10th century writing. This actually has several things. They have something called the ABC literary. So it's like A, B, C, D, except in Hebrew, Aleph, Bet, Gimel. And it has a name inscribed. And you can see this is about you know, 30 pounds or so. Uh, it's an altar. And the name, it says to Baal. And so some sort of worship to an outside deity. And the ABC, the ABC diary, it lists the alphabet, but it changes the order of four letters. And one of the theories is it's part of this magical ritual to manipulate the alphabet to somehow influence the deity. And you can see with that picture, you know, that, that could make potential sense. The point is when magic, when, I'm sorry, when writing is rare, it becomes powerful. They use the word numinous. It might invoke, the, in, that in fact might be what David is doing in the census. I don't sure, I'm not sure if he's doubting God by counting, but if he's performing some sort of magic bail ritual, to get the power of the God. And that's not clear in the Bible. It's, it's left for us to, to guess what that is. So there's a power to writing. There's also a kind of establishment of authority in writing. So most of the examples of the ninth century are in these big inscriptions. This is in basalt. So remember limestone, you just kind of scrape it off. Basalt, and they didn't have power tools. And look how clean these letters are. So this is kind of a cool story. Uh, a well-known archaeologist named Abraham Baran, he was coming to his 70s. He was interviewed, and he said, you know what? I'm going to go through my whole life. I probably, looks like I'm not going to find anything spectacular. And then they uncover this at a place called Tel Dan, the biggest city in the north. And if you read Hebrew, this actually says Beit David. This says House of David. And most people think it refers to the historical David. It's written in Aramaic. It is found in secondary use. So already in the ninth century, you have a stella of some king bragging that he has defeated the house of David, which means David's probably a legit political ruler at the time. If, you, if I scaled back, you'd actually see it kind of curves a little bit this way. So one theory is this is a torso of a, a human representation of this screen. So writing is used to promote kings to tell us to, to lend itself to political authority. And the great irony of this is the only extant writing that refers to the historical David is bragging about defeating David, but this actually helps to confirm his existence of some, uh, as some strong political ruler. This was a huge deal in the 90s. Um, yeah, and he, and he found this. Uh, another example, there's the Beit David right there. A couple more examples. This is a Moabite stone. This is uh, otherwise known as the, the Mesha Stella. You can see this at the Louvre. Uh, again, written in basalt, perfect letters. You can't just do that for graffiti. It can't be some kid just messing around. This is a trained scribe with the training and the tools to write these nice letters. This talks about the kings of Omri as well. But it starts, I am Mesha, O king of Moab. It's, it's a bragging this is all about all the greatness of him, his great ancestry, and the great things that he did. This is called Sennacherib's Prism. This refers um, literally to 2 Kings 18-19, but it's from Sennacherib, the Assyrian point of view, written in a way to talk about how he captured Jerusalem like a bird in the cage. And they're all done to promote 
the polity, the authority, and the legitimacy of these kings. And this is how writing is appropriated. This is a Dead Sea Scroll, and this is the oldest, the very first biblical verse written. And this is a sixth century uh, found near Judah in um, Ketephanom, uh, near Jerusalem. And this is a small little silver amulet. This was discovered, I think, in the 1980s by a guy named Gabby Barkai. And this is the priestly blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. And this is the earliest verse that we have extant. But because an amulet, we're guessing that someone wore this. And it was found in a tomb. So if you're buried with something, there's going to be some power to this writing. And you have the, the Dead Sea Scrolls community that were scholars and scribes that wrote over and over again. If you think about writing as rare, uh, a group of 100, you have two or three that can read, and maybe less than one who can write. In a culture where writing is not just rare, but it's elite, it's powerful, it's used to promote kings, it's also used to invoke the deity in the ancient and eastern culture. If you have something that's written, it's precious, precious enough that you're actually gonna wear it all the time, and uh, to dedicate yourselves to its preservation. So knowing that in mind, let's go back to Ezra Nehemiah and think about the writing. So I won't read all of this. I want to leave some time for questions as well. But what's really remarkable about Nehemiah 8, remember they came to build a temple, and they did it. They rebuilt the temple, right? And then they rebuilt the walls. And then Nehemiah 7, you have the, the census list, which matches Ezra 2. And so that sounds like the end of the book to me. You read Nehemiah 7, it feels like you're done. This is good. Great Bible book, awesome. Let's move on. But then it keeps on going. It goes on to Nehemiah 8. They're not done yet, even though they've built the temple and built the wall. And it goes on the, to a portion where they bring back Ezra, and he reads the Torah. And I think this is the real innovation, the theological innovation of Ezra Nehemiah. The power is not in Cyrus. The power is actually going to be subversively given to the book of the Torah, God's word, writing. And even though they're there to build a temple, they're establishing a religion that has the ability to observe God, obey God, anywhere in the world. You don't need the temple. God is bigger than that. He cannot be constrained by the temple in Jerusalem. But God can be obeyed through the word of Torah. And so he comes to Ezra 8.1, it talks about the book of the law of Moses, and again, a reference to the book of the law. And this is accessible not in the Holy of Holies, but the men and the women and those who can understand, which is redundant. Anyone that can understand. I think it implies that you don't need to necessarily be Jewish, but if you can understand these words and, and hear them, you're a part of the community. And later on, uh, they read it, for six hours. So I don't know the longest sermon you've done. I'm on the short side. I like, you know, youth, 30 seconds, just kidding, like seven minutes, you know, for youth. Uh, you know, when I'm asked to preach, I'll feel the church a little bit. Um, you know, most, uh, you know, most primarily Caucasian congregations, I'll go like 20, 25. Koreans, they kind of think you're not as spiritual unless you hit that 30 minute mark. And so I'll, I'll kind of hit that 30 minute mark. Um, but I've never preached or lectured for six hours. That sounds terrible for everyone involved. Um, and they, but they just called the word of the God, uh, and men and women all could understand what they heard. And um, the ears of the law, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They kept attention for all this time of Ezra reading the scroll from early morning to midday. You know when you get behind a pulpit and you just you feel like you're losing them? You know that feeling? Six hours. I teach undergrads. You know, I have to give them a break every 45 minutes. They just can't, they need to check their phones or something like that. Uh, but imagine if you didn't read, if you couldn't read, and you didn't have access to the word of the Lord. And imagine if I were to take away your Bibles but then you get to hear it for the first time in years. You could see it. You could see it like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I kind of heard about this, but I never heard it read for me. I could see it. 
and how hungry you would be for the word of the Lord, how eager you would be to try to take up as much as you can. And if they read it through, read it again. Keep on going. I do this exercise with students. We listen to the entire Gospel of Mark, uh, two hours and 40 minutes, straight, no bathroom break. And part of it, I just want them to, to hear it, but it just about kills them. <laughs> like, and it's the shortest Gospel. It's the shortest one. Listening to the entire word of the Torah, whatever it is at that moment. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so what happens during this reading? And this, I would argue, is the culmination of power. So even though authority is granted to Cyrus, even though the Davidic dynasty is relegated to the past, even though God is not the God who acts, I think you get real power in written Torah, which equips the people to worship outside of Jerusalem. It prepares early Judaism. It also prepares... Um, the kingdom of the Christianity, to be not relegated to one single space. So with written Torah, Ezra read from early morning to midday. When Ezra opened the book, the people stood up. Think about that. What does that mean? When, what, what do people stand in the Bible? People answered amen, lifted their hands, and bowed down to the reading, not to God. So the book, the scroll, the words of Torah, they're almost treated like a god. It isn't treated exactly like a god, but they're, they're doing actions as if this was the god. And I think this is the deliberate innovation that the Torah, the written Torah, is going to be the way by which we worship, the way by which we renew the covenant. There was an explanation of the word. There was some way where people, they're not, they haven't heard it for a long time. So the Levites would talk about it. They would explain it. And there was interpretation of the word. And so this most likely refers to the Torah is written in Hebrew. The people speak Ashdodite or some form of Aramaic, probably. And so it's being translated. And so it's really important, even though it's written in Hebrew, it's obvious not everyone can understand that, but it's being translated so people can understand, people could hear. Um, I mean, probably all sat in spaces where you heard a sermon that you didn't understand. Uh, there was a tension so people could truly understand those words. Written Torah becomes the one thing that Ezra Nehemiah embraces in its early interpreters. So they have this long tradition. Uh, you've probably heard of a second Ezra's, first Ezra's. Uh, early Judaism, early Christianity take portions of Ezra and Nehemiah and they keep on writing more. They add like apocalyptic versions as well. Uh, this is quoted in Origen, um, early church historian or you know, patristic, um, actually medieval uh, Bede writes the first commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. But what's really interesting, even um, Islam, uh, the Quran makes reference to Ezra. A couple of things, they really take this aspect the power of the written word. And they talk about this. Um, you can see how that makes sense for Christianity. You can see how that makes sense for Islamic religion. But it's the fact that they take this spoken Torah, this law, and they codified it and made it into an oral, a written word. And this was the culmination of Ezra and Nehemiah after everything's done. And what happens after Nehemiah 8? They go on this long repentance prayer of Nehemiah 9. And what happens at the end of Nehemiah? They, they pledge to do better, to, to obey God in the future. And what happens in Nehemiah 10 through 13? They actually do actions to reflect their commitment to God. The mixed marriages, which of course we talked about yesterday, which is not cool hermeneutically today, uh, but the observing of Sabbath. They want to do what it takes. They want to make sacrifices to maintain their identity as worshipers of God. So God is still there but he's not contained in a temple. God is now manifest in a written document in the word of the Lord by which people respond to, hunger for, and something that transforms their lives so they can truly uh, exist as a community. And this is the summary. Uh, and the people wept. I forgot that one. There's a very um, physical reaction to hearing the word of God. There's something very emotional, something very powerful at the moment of what it does. The power for the repatriates shifts from the God who acts to the written Torah. The God who acts is still there. 
but this God is making himself available to this repatriate community. He's making himself available to the diaspora, and it's through the written Torah. Uh, and this frees people without access to the temple to still be part of the community, to obey God. Uh, before I take a few questions, I want to give you a few resources um, as I close out. Uh, a few of you asked me yesterday about how like books, preaching for Ezra and Nehemiah, and so there are a couple of things I mentioned. Uh, and so I'm always happy, I'm pretty easy to find, just shoot me an email. And um, you know, I, I really actually like talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. And I have a book coming out maybe the end of this year. I turned the manuscript a week ago. It just depends on what the editor says. Uh, the Theology of the Books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And um, the two commentaries I'm mainly working with right now, Joseph Blankensop wrote the last critical commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. And this was published in 1988 with um, the Old Testament Library with Westminster John Knox. I'm in the middle of um, doing the updated version, and so I will do the next version of that. Uh, Dr. Blankensop is still alive. I don't think he knows that I'm doing it. I was once in an elevator with him, and I thought, should I introduce myself? I decided not to, because he, he was kind of scared. Uh, so Blankensop is a Catholic American scholar. Hugh Williamson is a British evangelical scholar. Uh, he wrote his commentary with Word Biblical Commentary in 1985, and he was offered to renew it. He, he declined. And so that's also being redone by Deidre Fulton of Baylor University. And I know her deadline is 2024. So we're kind of in conversation as we read through the text. My deadline is 2023 for the top one. If you just want like five or seven pages on a good introduction, Tamara Kohn Eskenazi wrote the introduction to Ezra Nehemiah, the Women's Bible Commentary. So it's not an explicitly gendered introduction, but she is a really good literary scholar. And so you have American, Catholic, British evangelical, Jewish, female, and that's kind of a nice range of perspectives. Uh, even though she's known as a literary scholar, she has good historical information in this commentary. I also want to introduce two sites, and these are the two sites I introduced to preachers. Working Preacher is that one that I talked about if you ever are stumped with a path, okay, here's the theory. <coughs> so I've written probably 30 or 40 commentaries for them in the last eight years. Uh, they believe that pastors are stressed. They believe that they're too busy. And so what they do is they find biblical scholars to write 1,000 word commentaries on a passage to help jumpstart your preparation on a passage. So the encouragement is to read the passage, think through it, but every uh, lectionary passage, they'll have multiple commentaries. They're written by pretty good scholars, too. Um, uh, just a thousand words of our observations. That might help you in your preaching preparation. And it covers both testaments. They, this is run by uh, Luther, Luther Seminary. So a good number of those scholars are ELCA, Lutheran, but they ask all sorts of people to write. And they also have a podcast every week on the passage of the week with four scholars talking about that. Bible Odyssey is another one. This is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, about, I think 2012, they launched this site, and their idea is there's a lot of bad biblical interpretation in the internet. Crazy idea. There's a lot of really bad interpretation, and so they want to uh, create a public platform by scholars. So this is a very ecumenical space, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, atheist, agnostic, and if you Google anything in there, Samaria, uh, the book of Genesis, you'll find both articles and bibliography and videos, a short one to two minute videos about um, something about the time. And it's, it's public access, so you're also free to um, even play those videos in classrooms, in Sunday school classes on Sundays, and they continue to update it. They also have a section called Ask a Scholar. So if you have a question, um, it could be anything. What is this theological significance of uh, the virgin birth? And you know they would vend that through, and they could choose to answer that and, and vet that to one of their scholars that works for, for Bible Odyssey. Uh, with that said, I want to open up for a few minutes for any questions that you might have on what I presented there. Yeah, Dave. Uh, this kind of goes back towards the beginning stuff, but a question I had was, um, I'm studying the books of Haggai and Zechariah that also deal with them coming mm -hmm. back. Yeah. Are those important books to study along with 
Oh yeah, those are the only, this is a rare instance of a biblical book referring to another biblical book, which they do to Haggai and Zechariah. Yeah. And they both have life after the exile, after the return. Haggai and Zechariah has a, a different view of David. They're actually much more positivistic on David. And it's, go, it's good to see different perspectives on that for sure. That would be a good, so um, 5 1, Ezra 5 1, you'd see the mention. Uh, yeah. 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 And that's part of the Bible too. Like in, um, so I I do have a chapter called Ezra Nehemiah in the in the Old Testament, and that's a pretty substantial section because they're both giving different prophetic perspectives on this period, which would be different from Ezra Nehemiah, which is more like they're both sanctioned in the Persian court, so it's a different perspective. Of the same period. Yeah, it's good. Glad you mentioned that. Yes? It's really interesting uh, what you were saying about the Torah and its role. At, in, in both the prayers in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have this emphasis on we're still slaves. And, uh, and, and in that sense, kind of the, the freedom, the independence, and so forth has never uh, been given back. And they're still in, as it's often been said, still in kind of exile, even as the, the, the small group comes home. And, and all of that. Do you see the, the, the role of, the, of Torah as it emerges in this as a kind of alternative statement of independence and, and freedom and power that they can have sort of subversively uh, in the midst of being slaves within an empire right. that they really cannot control yeah. and cannot over, overturn? So Absolutely. You know, the Jews, the Judeans were subjected to empire from the Assyrians all the way to 1948. And so you could see that this is the true power, is not Cyrus. That's will pass. And after the Persian Empire in the, the Hellenistic era, they knew that now. Like, wow, Torah lasted, but Cyrus and his empire didn't. And so you could see how incredible this book was for the early Jewish communities when they're now under the Romans, uh, when they're now under the Byzantines, when they're under Spanish Inquisition um, in 20th century. Yeah. So that in I've worked mostly in the New Testament, but by the time you get to the New Testament times, many of the Jews, especially the Pharisees, but also people like Philo and so forth, see the Torah as the central grace of God, the basis for the creation of the world. Uh, you know, it's taken on its wisdom and, and all of these right. things, so that it becomes very, very metaphysical in its, uh, in its character. It seems like it might be kind of a development out of these these traditions that developed right here that you were talking about. Right. Early Jewish literature makes that connection. They actually say that Ezra, not Moses, wrote the Torah in some places. They say that Ezra was valid to receive the Torah. Uh, later scholars, Bert Spinoza, said that Ezra was the founder of modern Judaism because this idea of a portable Torah that can take into diaspora with an empire became so profoundly powerful, especially also there are so many forms of Judaism and then when the temple was just the second temple was destroyed in 8070, then when you know Pharisaic Judaism emerged, it was it was Torah that they said oral Torah, which they eventually codified as well in the Mishnah. Yeah. It's a very, very important beginning to all sorts of tradition. Yes, sir. Going back to yesterday's too, um, on the cultural re repartation. Um, it just seems like they also the the need to maintain this, uh, this this covenant fidelity in terms of the righteousness of God that 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 kind of overstepped some of the cultural differences. Like the cultural difference not is bad if it if it interferes or offends God in this in this uh, in this righteousness issue. And it goes back to that you made that you that passage there about. Look what Solomon did to us, did to him, and that's the same problem we're guilty. And it's not just because we're guilty that he did that; guilty because of the the kind of behaviors that that brought on. And so I was, you know, you're, we have classical culture, but some of it is there's a righteousness issue that we've got to also yeah. contend with. Okay, yeah, these books try to. It's wonderful. Tor transcends the culture, although the culture is you know, it's going to be received. And the very idea that it's in a different language, I think, acknowledges. The reception of culture needs to be thought through. It needs to be explained and interpreted for those that don't read Hebrew or understand Hebrew. But the ultimate ideal of the Torah does transcend. I want to put the idea that 
I do think within this as you preach, Jesus is the ultimate subversive power. No authority. <laughs> Just no authority. And when he proclaims that authority on the way to Jerusalem during the Passion, he is crucified. And but that very act of trying to kill him is what really brings him into a powerful place in the world. And I think that really resonates with people. Um, you have a group of Judeans who have no authority. They're economically weak. They're in the midst of a huge empire. They're marginalized. Even their neighbors hate them, and they try to subvert them. But in the end, they did everything. It is the word of Torah that allowed them to do that, allowed them to restore worship. They don't really need the temple. It's the Torah that allows them to, to maintain their covenant with God. I am at my mark. I need to let you have your break before 945, but it was a pleasure to be here, and um, thanks for hanging in. Yeah.